Welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. It's a little chilly here on the East Coast as we dip into the winter months. And I'm okay with that because I've got wine, I've got really good wine, and I've got great company this afternoon with me uh, in the way of a friend, of a colleague, an incredible writer. And I want to start by saying that this podcast has never, ever been a podcast that you know, lets people come on here and like plug their things, right? Like we're just, it's just not that kind of podcast. And I say that for two reasons. One, I just want to be clear about that for my PR friends. But two, I say that because today is not going to be a moment about plugging a book. It's going to be a moment about great conversation, which is what this book is. A conversation starter, a think piece, an opportunity to re-examine maybe how you've been looking at wine It's a conversation that I'm excited to have because this podcast has always been about great conversations, first and foremost. And I am very excited to have my friend Ray Isle on to talk about his book, The World in a Wine Glass. This is truly, and I I have read the book, I I have to say it is, it was inspiring and it was an exciting read. And it's a book that is now an official must-have moving forward for any of my wine drinking friends, which I assume for those who are listening or watching, are you. So without any further ado, please welcome to the show, Ray Isle. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? It's great to see you. It's, it's great to see you on the East Coast. You know. I know. Uh, I know. It's very strange. I'm not used to it yet. <laughs> strange for me too. You know, we, were, I mean, we haven't had you here, you know, in a long time, I think. It's been a full eight years, although I, as you pointed out before, privately, it's I've been threatening for a while to come out here. So yes. Well, welcome. I'm glad you brought the massively heavy book of mine with you. <laughs> oh, your, no, no, no. Your, your, P- your PR team was very generous to send it my way out here. So I have, I actually have multiple okay. copies Excellent. now, but um, it's a great book. I'm excited to talk about it. It uh, And I know you've been, you've been busy on like your book tour, promoting this thing. Oh, yeah. How's it been going? It's great. I mean, I, I was in Grand Rapids at the Grand Rapids Wine and Food Festival, which I, I had to admit, I didn't even know existed before before they asked me if I would come do it, which was fun. First time to Grand Rapids. Uh, I was down in Charleston for it. Nice. South Carolina. Uh, I've done a bunch of events here in New York. I'm headed to wine country, uh, Napa, Sonoma, San Francisco, early December. Um, I'll be doing some doing an event at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, a couple of events in Napa and Sonoma. It's it's. It's fun. Yeah. It's actually really fun. You know, it's pretty cool. I bet I have to imagine. I mean, in addition to writing this book, which by the way, like you've been in the wine industry for, I'm not going to call you out, but it's been decades, right? And this is your first book. It's been a bit. Yeah. Yeah. First book. Exactly. And your full-time job is the executive wine editor at Food & Wine Magazine, which is sort of how we met amongst, you know, other ways. But I have to imagine in, you know, being stationed in New York, I know you travel a little bit. I love getting out to other regions in the country and experiencing how other people drink wine. Has that been fun? It's one of the things I love best because it's it's very easy, I think, to be, whether it's in the magazine, like tunnel vision or the wine business tunnel vision and forget that, you know, you forget how big the country is. You forget how yeah. how many people there are out there who, who actually do like wine and how many people are like wine, but don't know as much as they'd like to know about it. I mean, yeah. It's one of the fun things about doing events like that. And it's a, that, the Grand Rapids one, for instance, is a big event. And it's a lot of people who are interested to kind of want to come for the weekend and see what wine's about. And you just get great questions. You know, it's, it's really, it's really, I, I didn't start out knowing anything about wine. I didn't mm-hmm. grow up in a wine drinking family. And so it's, I'm always, I try and keep that in mind as part of my, 
life as a writer and life as a wine guy or whatever it is I am. I think that shows. I think it definitely – well, and I think you're also very funny, which I, I don't know how many people <laughs> realize how funny you are. I'm deadly serious at all times. It's <laughs> my are, nature. Well, this is, this is what I – why – the things that I came to soon discover about you, because, you know, you like, you know, the executive wine editor of Food and Wine magazine is coming to the restaurant. Like everybody gets very <laughs> nervous, right? Let's make sure we have the right wine for them. Let's make sure the food's perfect, which I'm sure happens a lot, right? But like then you kind of like you get – I got to know you and I was like, this guy's very funny. He doesn't take – I mean, he, you you take what you do very seriously, but – Yeah, wine, wine tends a problem with taking itself too seriously sometimes. And I think people forget that it's – you know, a big part of wine is that it's fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's both fun to drink, obviously. It, it does has alcohol in it. That doesn't hurt. Sure. But it's fun learning about wine. It's not, you know, I say when I teach, you know, do wine seminars and so on, it's, you know, learning about wine is not like calculus. It's not like trigonometry. It's the way you learn about wine is drinking wine and asking people questions about wine. And that's, yeah. that's actually a pretty delightful activity. And I did not find calculus delightful. I'm sure there are people out there who did. But, sure. you know, you don't have to learn every last detail about every aspect of wine to enjoy drinking wine. Right. Like a little tiny bit of knowledge actually works really well. No, I, I think that, I think it's almost better that way. But I also think that, and we'll get into this later because you've got a few things, other things to talk about, but in the book, you really give people an opportunity to form their own opinions without feeling mm -hmm. judged for it. Like, I think you give yeah. people a lot of outs and I think you, you just say, Hey, these are the facts and you do it in a really funny way with like little quips that, you know, I think there's just, so, there's some moments in the book that where I'm just like, yeah, like form, like take this information. And it's a, it's an uh, sort of an unbiased look at, at the start of all the different ways that people farm, whether it's sustainably, biodynamically, yeah. organically, regeneratively. And you sort of look you paint this picture and then you dive into the book with different producers, but you paint this picture of all the different ways that wine can be produced and you do it in a right. way that has a little bit of bias, but you also do it in a way that says like, you know, it's okay to like, it's okay to like Taco Bell. It's an okay thing. Yeah, it's, it is okay. I mean, I, you know, I say that I, I do talk about Taco Bell in the book and I, I actually do like Taco Bell tacos, but I, I also do think that there's a lot of wine in the world that is mass produced industrial beverage product basically. Sure. And it's totally fine to drink that. And sometimes that's all you want. And it's like, in the one analogy I use is like, if I'm, I grew up in Texas, if I'm mowing the lawn in August in Houston and it's 103 degrees and I've been doing it for an hour and someone drives by and offers me a cold Budweiser. I don't care how artisanal <laughs> or not it is. I will be very happy to drink that beer. And, that's going to be, that's going to taste know, damn good. Just like a, it's going to taste damn good. Just like a taco when you're on like a 40 hour road trip from Taco Bell. Like it's going to taste good. Yeah. And so if you're on the beach and someone hands you a random glass of red wine, it's some mass produced, you know, 10, 10 million bottles a year thing. And it's the right thing. Great. But I do think that there's, and what I want to write the book about, obviously, are, are there's a different realm of wine, which is, you know, made by people who live where they farm. They live at the vineyard. They 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 farm conscientiously. They care about, you know, there's a personal investment and passion going on there. And I think that comes through in the wines. And that's a different sort of product. It's not a mass industrial produced, you know, beverage product or whatever you want to call it. Well, and I think you, I think you have to answer a question, an age-old question that you get asked a lot, I get asked a lot, which is like, what makes certain wines better or more expensive or, you know, and yeah. I, I think these are very nuanced. These, It's a simple question that requires a nuanced answer that I think you sort of, you know, indirectly give way to in some ways during the course of this book. It's a long book, but it's not a, an incredibly dense book, I guess right. is the way to put it. I really right. wanted to, to make people feel somewhat empowered to buy things rather than daunted by wine, which is, and 
God knows people are daunted enough by wine. Um, we are for, all daunted. For good reason. So, you know, it's yeah, just it's like, it's, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot and it's a lot of choice. It's that choice paralysis. Wine is, wine is super for choice paralysis. You go in and, you know, there's 350 Chardonnays in total wine. You're like, ah, right. <laughs> what am I supposed to do here? Well, speaking of Chardonnay, we've got, I have two topics, hot topics. One, I'm sure you're aware that Sonoma Cotrer, Sonoma Cotrer, say that 10 times yes. fast, has been sold. It has indeed. This is an interesting one because I think, I don't know if you saw the specs of this, but the sale price was $400 million, which is basically 21.5% of an equity stake in Duckhorn, the Duckhorn portfolio, plus another $50 right. million that went to Brown Foreman, who... Brown Foreman is not, I mean, Sonoma Couture was not an independently owned winery. This is not like Massacan no, getting sold to Gallo or Rambo or whatever. Yeah. This is like big conglomerate sells to big conglomerate, then gets an equity stake in right. said big conglomerate. I thought the sale price was really interesting for $400 million when Sonoma Couture generated a whopping $84 million net just last year. Seems cheap. It seems cheap, right? You look at Sonoma Couture and it, 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 I didn't know it was $84 million net, but that's a lot of net. You know, right. That's that's not gross. That's net. And yeah. and then you look at the Dow Correct. DAOU sale, which was nearly a billion dollars. Correct. Far as I know, that winery is not as big as Sonoma Couture, and nor is it as well known a brand. I mean, maybe maybe it's bigger than I than I realize, but I would say name recognition wise, Sonoma Couture is a, a, a more visible brand. And mm-hmm. I don't know how the numbers pan out on that. I don't know. I don't know the details, so I don't know. How much vineyard came with the Dow sale? How much vineyard came with Stone Trier sale? One's a fairly very established brand. One's a, a newer brand. One's Paso. One's Sonoma. Right. Know. But it's still. I agree with you. The price seems strange. The first thing that I looked at it was like I know Sonoma Trier. I've known it for. I knew it before I was in the wine industry, which means it's pretty well known. Right. Dow's only been around since 2007, and there is vineyard land associated with it. They do have a higher price point than Sonoma Trier right. does, but. Again, four hundred million when you're doing eighty-four million net in a year. I don't know. It feels like a deal to me. But what do I know? I'm just a musical theater major. <laughs> I, exactly. I'm an English major, and and clearly, you know, it, <laughs> I think one of the winemakers in the book actually told a story. His father was a you know, he, he's he's the winemaker and, and co-proprietor with his father of, of the vineyard that he's at, and his father, who's a surgeon, upon being told that by his son that he was going to be, a, I think, comparative lit major, actually, or English major, he, he said, you know the you know, the absolute one thing you need to know how to say if you're an English major is, um, do you want fries with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> which is like, okay. <laughs> so it all worked out well. He's a winemaker now. <laughs> He's a winemaker. I love but, it. Well, yeah, that, that is that is a direction that some of the English majors have gone, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it, I would say that the English major is a wildly versatile degree that has no specific job it's associated with, but it's good for all sorts of things. You know, I agree. Maybe, like a maybe that's the major. answer. Yeah. Other big news in the world. I don't know if you saw The Guardian just published. UC Davis maybe has found the answer as to why certain people get headaches from red wine. Now, this is specifically Ooh. red wine. And I know that you bring up the sulfites conversation in the book. Yeah. And to be clear, as, right, as you pointed out in the book, your headaches are not the result of sulfites, which are naturally occurring and then potentially added depending on how people right. are making the wine. This is specific to those people who get these like crazy red wine headaches that are not the result of right. a hangover. This is like happening 30 minutes after a glass or even two glasses. 
so you're converting alcohol in two ways, right? Ethyl F from ethanol to acetaldehyde and then acetaldehyde to acetate. And there is right. a specific enzyme that's basically being blocked and this flavonoid quercetin that is that exists within really? red wine is potentially to blame. So they're getting closer. This is yeah, they're getting closer to figuring out. I haven't seen the article yet. I'm very, very keen to see it. And there's no question that people get red wine headaches. I mean, it's it's it happens. It's it can't be sulfites because if you got red wine headaches from sulfites, you would get even worse white wine headaches, but because there's just as much sulfites, if not more in white wine. But uh, science, it marches on, damn it. And <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and our friends at UC Davis are always there for us, right? They are. Interestingly, uh, grapes that are exposed to more sunlight can have five times more quercetin than other reds. So Interesting. This could also be the reason that some people are like, oh, Napa Valley wines give me a headache. That could be it. The sun-kissed grapes. And maybe what you need is like really underripe, horrible Cabernet that was grown under cloud cover for, <laughs> for the entire yeah, growing maybe. season. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a lot to talk about in the way of uh, the Insider's Guide to Artisanal, Sustainable, Extraordinary Wine to Drink Now with you in just a second. But before we get there, this is your moment to be reminded that if you're not part of the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club, you are missing out because we've got a good one for you today. This is a delicious wine from Sicily that is actually featured in Ray's book. In fact, two of the wines that were in this shipment were featured in Ray's book both the Cos and the uh, the Chateau Tivan from, from Beaujolais. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So if you're interested in signing up for that wine club, you can do so in the description below. We give you all the ways to do that. And if you're already a part of the wine club, well, that means you probably have a wine that looks like this if you're watching. Or if you're not watching, it's a little kind of short bottle. It's a funny-shaped bottle mm -hmm. that you don't normally see. It's got COS in the front, and uh, it's a Ferpato from Sicily. We're going to talk all about it when we come back. All right. Hopefully you got a glass in your hand. I do. Ray, you got some wine? I have wine. It's very right, important. We're virtually Here, cheers, cheersing. You know. Yes, cheers. absolutely. Good wine too. Really lovely. Good wine. wine. Yeah. This is a very unusual wine for our wine club in that we've never featured a wine that if you've tasted it, you know exactly what I mean. It's a little... It's a little fun. It's a little funky. It's a little funky. But like funky in a good way, funky in a way that I really love. And actually, I was introduced to... This producer, for the first time not long ago, ironically, weirdly, in Michigan, I was at a little wine shop there. I was just in Michigan. I think this place is full of wine, you know, so what the hell? I'm just going to say, I think Michigan Michigan is a market that more of us need to be paying attention to. So shout out to my Michigan friends. But yeah, this little wine shop, I was in there and, and she said, have you heard of this producer? I said, no. So I bought a bottle um, and it was delicious. And then I was over in Rome in the summer and they had a bottle on the wine list. And so I've gotten to know this producer over the last year. And so when I reached out to the wine club, uh, wine team at Wine Access, and I said, you know, let's, can you help me source something that's from this book? They came back in a million years. I didn't think they were going to come back with this wine because it's not huge production. It's not huge production. It is an unusual wine. I mean, it's it's going to be polarizing. I think some people are going to absolutely love it. Some people may be like yep. a little like, I haven't had that before. Yeah. You know, Cuss is interesting. They, they're organic biodynamic. They're in Sicily. They were one of the first, if not the first, winery in Sicily to work biodynamically. Mm. They're sort of natural wine adjacent might be the way to play, say it. I don't think yep. they're quite part of that club, but they're pretty non-interventionist. Um, the O in Kos, because it's the initials of the three founders, mm -hmm. the O stands for Ocapinti, and Ariana Ocapinti, whose wines have gotten a lot of acclaim, and it is not in the book solely because I haven't met her before, yeah. 
she's the Okapinti, same Okapinti. She's her father is the Okapinti in Kos, and, and she's the next one down. Oh, I didn't realize it was her dad. I thought somebody had said it was a cousin or something. It's either her dad or maybe it's her uncle. I think it's her uncle, actually. It's her uncle. Huh. But regardless, the, the line continues. And I've I've had these wines, you know, a lot over the years. And I I love them personally. I think they, you know, there's a little funkiness, but it's not it's not like off-putting. Instead, it's just kind of it's a little it reminds me of like lamb versus beef. You know, lamb yeah. has a little beaminess to it in a in a yeah. really appealing way. And this wine has that kind of slight gamey quality in, in a wine context, the way that a totally. Napa Cabernet doesn't, which is very you know clear and yeah, filet mignon. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Great, great analogy. Great. I love that analogy. I think that's like it's spot on because it's it's you're right. It is. It's natural wine adjacent. So this wine was made with native yeast and open top concrete tanks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't see any oak. So and it was it was only aged for eight months in concrete after it was fermented. So it's very clean. It's very pure expression of the grape frappato, which I have to say, like every time I I hear the word frappato and I drink the wine, frappato is almost like this like onomatopoeia where mm-hmm. it just kind of sounds the way that it, it t- like frappato. It's just like it's like fun. It's fruity. It's lively. And like you hear frappato and you're like, it tastes exactly the way that you think it should. It's sort of light. It's sort of brisk. Yeah. Frappato sounds like you're walking quickly somewhere. Yeah. And this actually is that kind of wine. It's it's. It's fairly light bodied, a lot of berry flavor at the same time. I mean, there's a lot of flavor in there. It's a little like the Beaujolais of Sicily in a sense. Totally. Which actually may, I guess in the same shipment with Chateau Tivin, which is great Beaujolais. So yes. um, kind of an interesting, honestly, side by side would be a pretty fascinating comparison. Yeah, I would agree. I actually, I last night, I, this bottle, I will straight up tell you, we're recording this on a Monday. Sunday night last night, I was eating cheesesteaks because I'm in Philly. Right. And I was like, oh, I need, I need some wine with this. And I was like, you know, I'm recording this podcast with the rage tomorrow. Maybe I'll just, I'll dip in. I'll have a glass. Yeah. This bottle is three quarters gone. So much so that I actually went to the Wine Access website last night. And I was like, I'm going to buy three more bottles of this because I, I can't be done with this for the winter. So this is going to be like a go-to of mine. It's a great cheesesteak wine. I mean, it's perfect. Yes. And it's good because it's also, it's unpretentious. It doesn't cost a fortune. There's no yeah. like pulling the cork stress where you're like, oh, I might spend a hundred bucks on it. Maybe I should pull the cork. Maybe I should, maybe I should keep it for longer. It's like. It's, you know, it's a drink me now wine. Yeah. This wine is not a wine that needs decanting. It's not a wine that I think is going to get better with age. I wouldn't throw it in a cellar. I think, I mean, only out of yeah. intellectual curiosity, I think, just to see what the hell happened to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I kept a few like LaPierre, another yep. great uh, Cru Beaujolais producer. I kept a few of those just on hand to see like what it would do. And it was lovely, but I don't mm-hmm. think it got better. Like I think, no. I don't think it improved. But I love that we're drinking this wine on this podcast. One, because it's in your book too, because I just think it's a perfect wine for you and I to share. I Completely agree. It suits the personalities. <laughs> it suits them well. <laughs> we should be drinking it together. That would be more fun. But, you know, um, I know. Such, such and life, I, know we had, you know. I know we attempted to, but. Yeah. So before we get any further, not that this is like an interview podcast, but why did you write this book? It's been a long time yeah. coming, but why? Uh, yeah, it's been a long, it was, it was very big relief when I finally turned in the manuscript. <laughs> it's like, thank God I'm done. And like any wine writer, I kind of wanted to write a book at some point, but I didn't have, I didn't want to do yet another introduction to wine book because there are a lot of them and there's some extremely good ones. So why mm-hmm. jump in and do yet another? I didn't really want to do something that focused on a region because I'm more of a generalist. What I realized when I sort of put together the proposal for the book was what I was really, what I really care about. One thing that spurred it was this sense that there, there are ways that farm that you can farm that benefit the planet rather than, than mess it up further. Um, 
and as we deal with climate change and we deal with you know all sorts of issues regarding industri sort of industrial or conventional farming i you know off and stuff i i thought i've more and more thought that wine one wine is very uh this kind of wine is very proactive in that direction which has been kind of fascinating to watch it's something that matters to me two it's funny i was actually pushed or part of the book came out of a, the feeling that you know this this debate or antagonism even between the natural wine world and the, and the traditional or conventional wine world is really yeah. stupid it just drives me yeah. crazy and the reason it drives me crazy is because the the division isn't between people who are quote unquote natural and people who are farming biodynamically making great wine living on the land and using minimal sulfur who might as well be natural because they're somehow not part of that world that doesn't make any sense at all the division is really between wines that are made by a person in a place that express that place and who is working conscientiously both in the winery and and in the vineyard and you know mass market wines that are made in hundred thousand gallon tanks and are you know use liquid tannins and oak chips and whatnot to produce a, you know a, a, a basically a commercial beverage product and i think there's a there truly is a difference, both an, ex an experiential difference in terms of drinking it and a difference in terms of the kind of ambition and passion of the people in those two realms. And that's more the line I wanted to draw. So I wanted to concentrate on people around the world who were really living on the land, making wines that express the place they're from and, and had great stories too. Yeah. You know, we sometimes get caught in talking about terroir we place tons of emphasis on the soil, on the exposure, on the you know clonal type, all this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The truth is that even if you're a non-interventionist winemaker, wine is a is a massive decision chain, and the human hand is very much involved. You you can't true non-intervention winemaking is grapes falling on the ground and, and either rotting or vaguely <laughs> fermenting before they rot. That's you know. Right. The only natural wine that exists in a deer stomach or something. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. you know, so you're, you're doing all sorts of decisions about how you're pruning, how you're, how, when you're choosing to pick, what you're, you know, what, how you're choosing to work interventionally or non-interventionally. And that goes back to aesthetics and it goes back to the fact that someone's belief in what they're doing and the kind of wine they're making is very important. You know, um, yeah. people make, people primarily, at least in this realm of, of independently produced wines, make wines they would want to drink themselves. There's mm -hmm. very few people who, who choose to make wines they wouldn't want to drink. At least, you know, I, that may be not true in the industrial side, but it's, it's definitely true in this side. And so that choice plays into what the wine is. And I wanted to get those people's stories, you know, on the page. You, so like me, did not come from a wine drinking household, so to yeah, speak. Absolutely true. But you've been in the, in the industry for a while. And I have to imagine did not really come into the industry thinking like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to really focus on producers that are biodynamic, organic. And just to be clear, you know, this is something that you're focusing on in the book. I think like in the magazine, it's, you know, you do different things. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, in real life, we, we drink a different way than maybe sometimes we are portrayed on our online personas or whatever it is. But when did the shift happen for you into paying more attention or focusing more on producers that, that were farming more mindfully or, or producing wines that were more expressive of their respective terroirs. Cause it wasn't immediate for me. No, it wasn't immediate for me either. And it's been gradual. I, 
weirdly, I didn't grow up in a wine drinking family, but I did grow up in an academic family. And my father mm. uh, was an English professor, hence the English major that, that okay. you know, he produced. But he, for the latter part of his career, he, he created a, a institute or whatever that was studying e- basically ecology and literature together. And so there had always been a presence in my growing up in my family of, of concern about the environment, a lot of hiking and mountains and things like that, um, which took driving several days from Texas, but whatever. Yeah. I kind of, in a way, almost circled back to some of the stuff I'd grown up with in that context. And I think it probably started, I mean, it's probably as much as 10 years ago, I started paying more attention to it, you know, mm. and then it kind of just, you know, as, as the total conversation about climate and, and all the aspects of the environment that are really problematic kind of has become more to the fore. I started paying more attention in terms of wine too. And also it's interesting. It's, you know, it also comes from talking to younger wine drinkers. I think there's a big shift going on in terms of generational shift in terms of what people are looking for when they pick up a bottle of wine. And, and this is actually true for for all consumer products, not just wine. If you look at statistics, the interest in sustainability and organics skews much younger. It, like the younger you get, the more, the higher the level of interest is, and I think that's probably how people have been brought up. You know, it's it's a it's a conversation that's been going on while they were children, as opposed to after they were adults. But I also just as I you know I just also found that like more and more the wines that I really like to drink all seem to be being made by winemakers who work this way. Yeah. And more and more winemakers are working this way too, which is right. is the other thing. I mean, the, the wine, I think I say this in the book, wine has this benefit or vineyard, growing grapes for wine has this benefit of, uh, I mean, wine grapes are not a staple. You know, it's, they're, Meaning, not, they're not rice or corn or wheat. Right. We don't have you, to consume it. You don't have to consume it and, you, and people will not die. I hate to break this to your audience, but in fact, people will not die if there's no wine. Um, <laughs> I mean, I may, you may, but- but generally speaking, you won't. So that gives grape growing, which is for this kind of wine, for really individual artisanal wines, which is already a fairly high level form of agriculture. I mean, no one's farming for maximum yield. If you're trying to make great wine, you're farming right. for controlled yields. It means that you've got a freedom to farm in ways that that someone who has 100,000 acres of wheat may not be able to do. I mean, I, I think it's a long time in the future to find 100,000 acres of wheat farmed biodynamically. <laughs> sure. You know, right. I, that would be a lot of work. But so that kind of confluence of things all came together. And part of part of doing the book was because it just came up more and more in conversation as I was talking to people just at events who were consumers who were like, you know, like, I don't really care that I got 94 points. I just want to know, like, was it something that I should put in my body, you know? Right, right. Well, and I asked the question because I, similarly to you, I think I've, so I've been in the industry now for almost 15 years. God, that's crazy. Yes, but you started when you were 12. <laughs> that's right. Thank you, Ray. But I think it's only in the last like few years that I, I mean, I, I think moving to Napa changed things for me. I think seeing mm-hmm. the farming firsthand and certainly, you know, Napa is maybe not the first place that people think of when they think of like biodynamic farming and like yeah. low intervention winemaking, but it does, it does exist and you are around it. And so you do get to see the effects of inputs and outputs and what it looks like when someone truly pays attention, which I think is really what this book is all about. It's not yeah. necessarily about like, you know, are you farming the right ways? Like it really is about like, is there transparency in what you're producing? It's not so much about, are you farming organically? It's like, why are you 
if you are like, wh- why right. did you make this choice? What, you know, what, what is it? Was it a marketing here? choice or was it because it's something you actually believe in? Yeah. And, and for the winemakers in this book, it's something they believe in. And I mean, I, right. I feel that is a hundred percent true through the 290 people I profiled in the book or whatever yeah. it is. I think the game changed for me a lot when I started to see that firsthand. And I think the more conversations I have with people around wine, the more I am inspired to drink producers that really do focus on that, that yeah. do make choices for their own personal beliefs, not necessarily, for, you know, and I think there there's room for marketing. I think there's room for financial benefit as well. But I think there is something to be said, like, you know, the, the wine that we're drinking today, there's something to be said for drinking a wine that really showcases not only the terroir, but also like the ethos of who the person or who the winery is. And there hasn't yeah. really, to at least to my knowledge, been a book or a person that I think has shown that in a way that is for the consumer. I think a lot of the books that we see are very like only drink natural wine or here's what biodynamics is. There hasn't really been a book that really gives you such a clear over, you know, a clear guide and and overview of what all those things are and how you should treat them. And here's the producers, by the way, that are also doing these things. And I think it's, it's so important to have this in our possession because I think one, it lends itself to great conversation, but two, it also inspires better drinking, which I think we're both for at the end of the day. I mean, I wouldn't write a book about wines I didn't think were really delicious. <laughs> you know, that's, right. that's, that's, that, that's part of it too. I didn't write about any wines that I thought were, you know, beautifully organically farmed, but tasted like crap. <laughs> that would be self-defeating. It is 100% true that you can be, you can farm conventionally, you know, and make stellar wine. You know, there's no question. And you can farm organically and make garbage wine if you don't know what you're doing. That's, that's right. also true. I, I applied a filter in that regard too. It's like, there's nobody in the book who's not making really, really great wine. One reason I did the book was exactly that, that I didn't see there was a book out there that that tried to kind of say all of these approaches have value and are interesting mm-hmm. and are being done by some of the best winemakers around the world, no matter where you go. It could be Australia, it could be Tasmania, it could be which is part of Australia, I know. Um, it could be Austria, it could be Lebanon, it could be southern Chile, it could be Napa Valley. There are people working this way everywhere who are making really great wines and have fascinating stories to tell. And, you know, I'm not an absolutist in that, you know, you get a lot of infighting in the organic, in the green world, let's say. Like, mm-hmm. It's like the organic people don't like the sustainable people. The sustainable people are like, yeah, organics doesn't uh, deal with the rest of the world. And the dynamic people are like, oh, both of you are kind of useless compared to us. And it's, it, you know, it you gets fairly tedious. And then the regenerative party shows up late. Yeah, the regenerative party shows up late. Well, we kind of <laughs> do everything that you guys do. So we're really <laughs> sort of better. But it's, to my mind, it's like, if you just, if you're just using solar power as opposed to fossil fuels, that's a, that's a good step. You know, you don't have to sure. like be biodynamic or nothing. Right. And I get, I get frustrated by the absolutism sometimes. You know, I had this conversation with the Napa Green people a few years mm-hmm. ago. You mentioned them in the book. There's a lot of criticism around the Napa Green project, which is, you know, more sustainable than anything else. Right. And the criticism is largely derived from the fact that they still technically do allow synthetic yes. materials to be used in their farming, which is a, which is fair. However, and what I told them, I said, you know, I think Napa Green is a step in the right direction for someone that's maybe trying to make a move toward beyond sustainability, organic, biodynamic, or regenerative, or a combination of all four. And I said that because I think, you know, if you look at humans, right, if I'm going to, if I want to change my lifestyle, the best way that I can do that is one step at a time. It's not mm-hmm. by completely overhauling and expecting those right. results to stick, right? If you're going to go and work out, sometimes the best thing to do is just say, hey, 
I'm going to get up and I'm going to do two push-ups. And then you know what happens. You do two push-ups and you're like, oh, I can do 10, right? I can do a little bit more than that. And so it's this, you know, it's a step in the right direction. I still think that using any sort of synthetic anything in your farming is, it's not what I want to drink. Right. But I also understand that, you know, sometimes these things take time and they take, you know. They do take time. And there's, this is, again, it goes back to the absolutism thing. And, and, and there's also, you know, I mean, the sustainability advocates do point out accurately that things like organics don't treat, I mean, organics is using or non, non-systemic products to treat problems in the vineyard. Right. More or less. It doesn't have a thing to do with carbon neutrality or, or, or solar power or wind power or treating your workers fairly. Social equity. Social right. equity. Any of the stuff that sustainability also rolls into its realm. And so each approach can, can throw a stone at the other approaches for not doing what they do the way they do it. But I think you're right that it's a gradual thing where you just try and move everybody towards doing stuff better. Yeah. And it's, I think, didn't, didn't Napa Green just announce that they're, they're making their platform no longer allow Roundup? I know they were moving toward it. I haven't seen the announcement. I thought there was an announcement just like two days ago. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Then I missed it. Yeah. It's worth checking. If that's okay. My apologies to Napa Green though. And I, I think as you point out in the book, I think these are all good things. This is That wasn't a knock on Napa Green. I think it's a good thing. It's just you have to know, I think as a consumer, where the division is, right? Where are the yeah. arguments coming from? And also like, you know, what do you really care about as a consumer? Like, is it more yeah. this like social equity? Is it making sure that you're, the employees are being treated right and that you're not like destroying the earth and your community in the process? Because that's definitely more sustainability. And some people would call that greenwashing, but some people would see that as like a, you know, this is a good thing because we're taking care of our community. I mean, there is greenwashing in the world. And when, for sure, you know, and there's a, there's a huge article recently in New Yorker about carbon credits and how that whole system for large companies is just riddled with problems. You know, you, you basically got a for-profit industries that um, want to sell products and if selling products by saying they're sustainable, will sell more products. They'll find a way to do it, whether they're sustainable or not. It's, it's like, yeah. okay, like way back when, when, you know, there was like the, the Pepsi commercial about we'd like to teach the world to sing with all the happy hippies dancing around, whether they just co-opted the whole <laughs> hippie movement and, to sell Pepsi. It's, it's, right. it's ongoing. It's always going to happen. You're always going to get that. So whatever, you know, there will always be greenwashing. But I do think that, you know, uh, Napa Green, yes, maybe they allow some systemic products or maybe they aren't, they don't, they're not the same as fully organic. It's way better than Napa Not Green. You know, sure. um, Napa, Napa, Napa brown scorched earth or something like that. You know, right. it's all incremental progress. I love that you pointed out 99% of Sonoma wine growers are certified sustainable or practicing sustainability. Yeah. And you would ask like, who's the holdout? <laughs> I, I do want to know. It's like, it's, you know, and it's, it's going to be someone with a very strong opinion. I am quite sure. Right. You know? And uh, right. just like, just get this BS away from me. And uh, what are you going to do? You know, there's going to be someone like that in every... Well, as you know, there's nobody in the wine world that has opinions, right? No, nobody thank God. Yeah. Or... It's, a, it's a weirdly <laughs> quiet, calm, unopinionated group of people. I, just... I mean, it's a good thing, right? I think it's good that we all have opinions. But I think it's also part of the reason that people have been a little bit scared to like to to tow the, to even move into this sector of like drinking yeah. wines. Like, as you said before, like there is this there's an analysis paralysis issue. There is, you know, this idea that like if you've got to be all or nothing. And so you know, biodynamics or organic farming or whatever is not a flavor. It's like, right. it, it's not a taste, you know? It, so it's not like organically farmed grapes are going to taste different. 
wine made from organically farmed grapes can taste like weirdly different from wine made from conventionally farmed grapes. It's still going to taste like Cabernet. It's more a question of how you approach the earth and, and, and a philosophical question about farming. So what's your, what's your elevator pitch then for drinking wines of this ilk? Well, my elevator pitch is if you, if you, I mean, hell, it's wine trends tend to follow food trends. If you primarily buy, you know, if you like to know where your food came from and you like to know how it was farmed and whether you like to buy organic produce or you want to like to go to the farmer's market, maybe you want to buy wines that sort of follow the same principle on some level. You know, it's it, wine trends often follow after food trends. Plus wine is not as transparent as food is partly because mm-hmm. it's regulated by a totally different agency, et cetera. But, you know, I think if, if that, realm of things is something you care about at all, then that's, then wine's a good way to spend your money, you know, in that direction. It doesn't mean you have to be, you know, it's like, it's also the, you know, it's not like, you know, I don't know, shoot, if I drink primarily wines that are sustainable, organic, et cetera, and then I happen to have a, a bottle of Dom Perignon, I have no idea how it's farmed because they don't talk about it, but you know, right. yeah, still good. But I do find that that's where, for my personal drinking, that's where I lean towards, you know, I want to know. Yeah. And the point of the book is also not solely the how you farm, but the, the real point is that these are wines made by actual people from an actual place and are expressing that place through their vision of what they're trying to do, which I think is what makes wine so exciting. Put it this way, the, uh, I'll borrow from one of the winemakers in the book who said that, you know, wine is a little like music and that the vineyard is the score, the 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 vine and the grape and the instrument and the winemaker is the person playing that, that, that score through that instrument. And it's all three of those things tie together very, very distinctly and, and interact with each other. And, you know, this happened to be a French winemaker. I said, well, who writes the score? And he said, well, God, of course. And I'd like, take your pick. It's God or mother nature or whatever. But, you know, right. that quote came from way back before I started the book. And that's actually one of the sort of signal quotes I've, or I've thought about in terms of wine over the years is that, you know, as much as we talk about terroir, there's the there's the player as well, the person who's transmitting right. through the grape into the wine. Well, the book is fantastic and is now a mainstay and a regular recommendation for me. I know you. you've not only you're of course, thank you. You've listed all of the producers, um, all of whom you have either personally met and or visited. Is that correct? Yeah, I've, I've I've talked to everybody in the book. I've been to most uh, a huge chunk of them. I, I haven't. Some of them I met in New York or, or elsewhere in tastings and, and interviewed. Unfortunately, I would have traveled more, but this pandemic thing got in the way. So there's sure. there was a, there's an allowance for Zoom allowance for Zoom interviews. You know, um, it's all people I've spoken to. It's all interview. I mean, almost everybody's voice is in there. It's it's all wines that I think are wonderful and that happen to be farmed and made in ways I think are really fascinating and good. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's a lot of producers in here that I, I've not had before. I'm so I'm excited to seek a few out. You've also listed producers that are not profiled specifically in here <laughs> yeah. that are great. Well, which you just know to be great. And then also I think very helpfully listed importers yeah. that share the same ethos or ideas that you, you talk about in the book, which is helpful. Importers are great, are great curators of, of, you know, if, you know, if you, if you like a wine from an importer, that other people in their portfolio are probably going to appeal to you too, because they, it's very much about taste, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think if you buy this book, if only for chapter two, that breaks down all (laughs) of the ways in which one can farm and or make wine, I think you're already getting your money's worth. I think it's an incredible overview 
of sustainability, organics, biodynamics, regenerative, and then all the ways that we sort of alluded to that wines can be made in a less natural style. Mm -hmm. I think for anyone who's ever been curious about what this side of the wine world, which by the way, is not a side of the wine world. It's really the wine world. Mm -hmm. But if you're curious about diving a little bit deeper and you are a little bit more thoughtful in how you drink and you want to see the wine world with a different lens and, and with different colors, I think this is a great book for you. And it's certainly one that I'll be referencing a lot over the next, um, I don't know how many years of my drinking career, but I wish you all the best in, in all of the, the book touring. I know it's the holidays. So, um, yeah. I guess my last question for you is like, what are you drinking during the holidays? I definitely intend to drink some champagne. Okay. I mean, not just for parties. I, I think champagne goes great straight through the meal. Sure. I'm going to be drinking a very random selection of wines at Thanksgiving because it's, uh, I have a lot of in-laws. We all have Thanksgiving together. They are pretty much happy to drink whatever you put in their hand. Mm-hmm. I bring a, a very random selection of stuff that I think it's good, but not crazy expensive for sure. And then yeah. I have a couple of nights coming up where I'll open something really great. I'm not sure quite what it's yeah. going to be yet, but I, I did pull a couple of cases from storage to, to nice. go through the holidays with. I think nice but not expensive is sort of the, the name of the game for the holidays when you've got I think so. like family and friends. I've done so many Thanksgiving columns you know, once a year for hour many years I've been at Food and Wine and I right. I finally landed on, I mean, I will have to come up with a different subject every year because you can't repeat the column, um, which is comical too. But I, I really have come up with my basic philosophy for Thanksgiving, which is forget about the food, look at the people, what do they like to drink, give them stuff they like to drink. Yes. You know, then yeah. don't worry about the pairing part, just make everybody happy. Just make it, just make everybody happy. I'm also a big advocate for the tumbler during Thanksgiving. Yeah, absolutely. We've had a lot of spills a lot of glass washing accidents. The less breakable, the better. Yeah. Even like, even the little like shitty, like, a, you know, Italian, like yep. almost like espresso glass ones also. Yep. That's a rate limiter for those of you mm-hmm. who have drinkers that are a little heavy handed. Yeah. You know, those glasses only hold about four ounces. That's a good way to like, you know, hey, you've had a few. Yeah. Slow it down. They'll just fill them with vodka. <laughs> <laughs> I know my my best laid efforts at like attempting to control the situation right. are always <laughs> futile at best. Well, anyway, Ray, always a pleasure. I'm so glad uh, I got the chance to connect with you on this. Where can people find the book and you, for that matter? The book is available, as they say, everywhere books are sold. That would include the giant place that books are sold that we all know, Amazon, as well as a wonderful site called Bookshop.org, which supports independent booksellers around the country. It's in a lot of books. I mean, it's, it should be. Scribner's a, a big publisher in the book as of recently. Thank God. I have a website, rayisle.com. It's very simple, R-A-Y-I-S-L-E.com. And it has, it should have mostly updated. <laughs> I think I have some updating to do in the next couple of days because I keep adding events, but it does have, it does have links to the events. So. Perfect. All right. Well, we will link everything below in the description, both on YouTube and on our podcast platform. And for those of you who want to check out the book, the book is called The World in a Wine Glass, The Insider's Guide to Artisanal, Sustainable, Extraordinary Wines to Drink Now by Ray Isle. And I encourage you to all get it, get a copy for yourselves and get a copy for your wine-loving friends and family because uh, it's a it's a good one. And I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited to know the author. This is very this is big. I'm really happy for you, Ray. I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you. You wrote a book. I think that's amazing and um, only great things to come. Thank you so much. It's great to see you as always. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Cheers.